Uh, our Father, we're so thankful for your grace. I, I thank you for the privilege that I have to be here with this high school group. Uh, thank you for them. I'm thankful that they're here. And I thank you for even the relationships here. I thank you that kids get to hang out and talk with one another and, and fellowship um, after a long week. And, uh, and so, God, we do pray even now that as we open up your word, uh, that you would enable us to hear uh, you speaking. Uh, it's not my words, but yours. And so, God, we ask for your help now. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, I uh, invite you guys to turn with me to Psalm 131. Uh, it's kind of closer to the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 131. Psalm 131. And uh, this is what it says. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. What does it mean to be content? What does it mean for you to be content? If there's one thing in your life that you had that would give you some sense of fulfillment, uh, contentment, and peace, what would it be? If I just had blank, how would you fill in that blank? Uh, you know, the movie uh, Chariots of Fire is an Academy Award-winning movie based on the real events and lives of two athletes competing in the 1924 Olympics. And one of the athletes is more well-known. His name is Eric Liddell, a, a Christian missionary, or a, a Christian born to Christ, uh, Scottish missionaries in China and Her Harold Abrahams. Uh, Harold and Eric are the two best runners representing uh, the UK. And, you know, I think I shared this illustration with you guys uh, for, before, uh, but in the film, we, we find, find out that, uh, that Harold makes the 200-meter final, but he finishes last. Uh, but he has one shot left in the 100-meter final. And in one of the scenes before the race, he says to his friend Aubrey, you, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You are brave, compassionate, kind. Uh, you're a content man. That is your secret, contentment. And then he says, I I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and yet I don't know what it is that I'm chasing. And now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again and raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? And, you know, as the watcher, you realize that Harold isn't just talking about the race or the Olympics. He's actually talking about the totality of his entire life. In, in many ways, this was the race of his life. All the friendships that he could have had, all the moments, all the time that he could have had, his entire body has been sacrificed for this one 15-second moment before the world arena of fans, critics, and judges. It's a lot of pressure. What if he loses? Will it all be a waste? But then he says something surprising to Aubrey. He says, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. You see, it isn't the fear of losing that scares Harold so much as it is the fear of winning. Why? I mean, hasn't his life been moving toward this very moment? Isn't this the race of his life? What if, is it, what if it isn't the pressure of losing, but the pressure of winning? Because what if Harold wins and it still doesn't give, doesn't, still doesn't give him the answers that he wanted? And what if the, the success still doesn't justify his entire life? You know, for, for you, what does it mean to be content? What is contentment? You know, with the, with the school year still pretty fresh, and as you're now settling into the rhythm and routine of going to school, maybe some of you guys are already wishing that school would just end. 
Uh, for some of you, contentment means you know, cutting stuff out of your life and cone marrying everything. Uh, contentment is to declutter your schedule and make sure that there are no interruptions that happen in your life. Contentment is saying no to everything, not doing anything, not going to anything. And you know, if you've been going to church for a while, you might have come to the realization that being a Christian doesn't seem like it makes your life less hectic, but actually more hectic. Like, we're, like were we so naive to believe that, that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light? Now we have to, you know, like read our Bibles, meet in community, pray, share the gospel as if our lives weren't busy enough as it is already. For, for others of you, our contentment is in the future. Uh, we're looking forward to when we can get back home from school and just do nothing. We look forward to when break starts, when our next vacation is, or when our midterms or tests are over. Like the weeks that I look forward to are the weeks when I don't have to preach, which is almost never. Uh, actually, I was on Twitter, and, uh, and I read a tweet that said that being an adult is just saying to yourself, but after this week, things will slow down a bit again until you die. <laughs> I, I really feel like that. And my life isn't even that hard. At least I don't have to wake up at 6 in the morning like some of you guys have to do. And then maybe for some of you, contentment is getting exactly everything that you ever wanted in your life. Uh, contentment is everything going your way. You get that 1600 on your SAT. You have no conflict with your friends. Your parents don't get on your back about homework, and then, and then life is good. I want you to think about what contentment is for you, and then consider this question. Can these things prop up and sustain your soul? That's a question, that's a legitimate question I want you guys to think about. As good as all of these things are, and as often as I am tempted to run to these things for contentment, the question that confronts you and me, in the words of Harold Abrahams, is can they ultimately justify your entire existence? Will we be forever in pursuit and constantly chasing one thing after another? Will that be enough for you? What King David in Psalm 131 invites us to see is that there is a kind of contentment that is enough and will endure to the end, no matter how busy, stressful, or tiresome life gets. And it's not ultimately found in our circumstances, as you guys all know by now, but in the living God. What the psalm cautions us is that if we believe that true contentment is found in the alluring promise of better circumstances, it will ultimately numb us and mask our souls to what it truly needs, God himself. Which is what makes it all the more important for us to hear. I think we know all of this already. It's the reason why Charles Spurgeon said that Psalm 131 is the shortest psalm to read, but one of the longest to learn. And so through this prayer of David, he instructs us on how to cultivate a heart that is content, a heart that is calm, thankful, in an age of hurry, distraction, and busyness. And so our key idea for tonight's message is that we cultivate a contented heart by knowing our place, by choosing the good portion, and by waiting on God. By knowing our place, by choosing the good portion, and by waiting on God. The first is we know our place. We know our place. And so as usual, I want you to take a look at the subscript of Psalm 131. Again, because it's an important start for us. It says, again, a song of ascents of David. The first thing I want you guys to see here, and it's really important, is that Psalm 131 is one of the 15 psalms that Jewish uh, believers from all parts of Israel sung and prayed as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. But how is it, you may ask, that we as Christians can join in the prayers of David and other faithful Israelites? How can these words be God's words to us if we didn't live during the time of David? How can it be possible that as Christians in the 21st century, we can claim Yahweh as our covenant God in the same way the Israelites did? The simple reason, it's really important, is that Jesus is actually the living embodiment of Israel's God. Okay? Jesus is Yahweh incarnated. He is the embodiment of God's law and God's temple. He is the fulfillment of all that Israel should have been but couldn't be. And that's the reason why Christians can claim these words as their own. 
It's because as people who have been united with Jesus, the Messiah, we are wrapped up in Israel's story. As people who belong to the Messiah, these words are for us as much as it was, as it was for them. Okay? Secondly, is that Psalm 131 is written by the warrior king David, which is what makes the content of this psalm surprising and especially worth listening to. If anyone knew how difficult life was, it was David. Over the course of his life, David faced pressure from all different sides, threats of death, homelessness, betrayal from his son. He was constantly being chased after, besetting sin, loss. On top of that, David was also a king. He managed and led God's covenant people. If anyone knew the demand uh, of responsibilities, the, the busyness of deadlines, the stress of taking care of different people, it was David. David's external life was chaotic and hectic, and yet it's as if, God, as, as if David has learned the secret to contentment. Take a look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now we have to understand how surprising these words are. As king, David was number one in the line of Israel. God made David an integral part of his plan to bring blessing to the whole world. His kingdom almost had messianic expectations and anticipation. There is no king before him that was like him, and there is no king after him that was like him. King David was the paradigm and the pattern. No matter who came after David, every king after him lived under his shadow. Kings were evaluated on whether they were like David or not. And yet, as unparalleled as David's reign and character was, David recognized that there was someone more unparalleled than him and recognized that there was one domain that he was not in charge of, the God of the the universe. It's the reason why for all of David's flaws, he was still called a man after God's own heart. If you take a look back at verse 1, there is a progression from his heart to his eyes to his way of life. Now, what was the outcome of his life? It says, he says that he does not occupy himself with things too great and too marvelous. Bless you. And the interesting thing is that those are the same words that other Psalms use to describe who God is. Okay? In Psalm 86, verse 10, David writes, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. In Psalm 136, verses 3 to 4, it says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does, there it is, great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. What is the point? The point is that David (coughs) knew his place in the vast expanse of God's universe. For all of his God-given and God-like qualities, David recognized that he was not God. David knows that as much as he was a king of Israel, he was not the king of the world. David didn't run the show. The kingdom ultimately wasn't David's, but God's. And that leads to two important applications of what knowing what our place means. The first is that knowing our place means that we are not the center of the universe. Knowing our place means that we are not the center of the universe. You know, about a month ago, Megan and I um, were at Harper's first birthday party. If you guys don't, don't know who Harper is, Harper is the daughter of uh, Matt and Lisa Palp. Uh, and, uh, and as Harper was about to have her first bite of the cake, um, I noticed a kid throwing a tantrum in the corner of the room. Uh, I don't even know who it was, so I can't even tattle on them. Uh, and I realized that the, the kid was, was throwing the tantrum because they wanted the cake, uh, despite the fact that there were countless other treats and goodies and desserts that she could have taken. Uh, the, the kid wanted the cake, but the problem was that it wasn't their cake. 
What this little story shows us is that there's a kind of restlessness and anxiety that comes when we make ourselves the center of the universe. Not many of us, I don't think, are outright claiming to, 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 the, to take the place of God. If you are, let's talk after. Um, but, but a far more insidious claim to Godhood is only a subtle degree off. It's when we make everything about us. We want the cake that does not belong to us. One of the most insidious ways we make everything about us is our relationships with people. It's often what will prevent us from rejoicing in another person's achievements and motivate us to envying them instead because we feel like we have worked harder than they did or we deserve better. For some of us, we're afraid of saying no to all these different people at school because we're afraid that they'll think we're lame or because we're afraid that they'll think that we can't handle it. It's not wrong to help people out and to serve others, but it's an altogether different thing when we are so driven by the approval of others that we can't stand the thought of their disapproval. So we become yes men and yes women to every person's beck and call. On the other hand, for some of us, we're too afraid of saying yes to all these things and people at school precisely because I'm too afraid of what they'll think of me. We become paralyzed by the fear of what others will think of us and we become no men and no women to our own beck and call. For some, of us, some others of us, I think some of us find ourselves daydreaming and rewinding the mental tape on how we wish we said something differently to this person. Not because we care about them, but because we care about how we came across to them. What would they think of me, of what I said? What we fail to realize is that our contentment rides on what people think of us and meeting their expectations. And this is something that not even pastors are immune from. Like I can, I can spend 40 hours on a Friday night message, not because I care about you guys, or because I want you guys to grow from it, but simply because I'm too afraid of what you guys will think of a botched sermon. It's one thing to honor God and seek the good of our neighbor at school, to be faithful in school and to work hard. God is not opposed to any of those things. But getting good grades, appearing likable and funny just so that others will like you is quite another. What will often drive the most extroverted person and the most introverted person in a classroom usually comes from the same place. It comes from placing ourselves at the center of the universe. And what we need to see and recognize is that if you want the benefits of ruling at the center of the universe, you also need to assume the responsibilities of running your own universe. If you want to rule your own universe, what you have to see is that the maintenance and responsibility of upholding your universe also falls on you. It's up to you to make your universe run. It's completely up to you to decide how intelligent you are, how you carry yourself, how well-liked you are, and how you look. And what we realize is that we can't. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that we feel anxious, stressed, and discontent when we run our own version of the universe. And so the question is, is this what you really want? Is this what you bargained for? Knowing our place means evaluating, evaluating who we do things for. Do we do it out of concern for the welfare of others, out of concern for the fame and honor of God, or out of a concern for our own fame and, and honor? By not lifting up his heart, by not raising his eyes too high, and by not occupying himself with things too great and too marvelous, David was simply recognizing that he was not the king of the universe. God is. And like David, we can say that my heart is not lifted up because we know who sits on the thrones of our hearts and who upholds our life. God upholds our lives. We will never be shaken. How beautifully freeing that is. The second application is that knowing our place means that we embrace our creaturely limitations. We embrace our creaturely limitations. 
you know, when I first became the youth pastor in, in 2015, uh, the youth ministry was in a huge period of transition. Pastor David had just stepped down. Uh, people who served in the youth ministry were moving to Texas. People who served in the youth ministry for a long time were, found, were stepping down. Um, I don't even really remember who was still around at the time. And uh, it all happened to fall on the year of our first huge sixth grade class, which if you can believe it or not, is our current 10th grade class, like, like Caleb's grade. Um, and I just remember dreading every Friday night because I was just so stressed. And, I didn't, and, and we didn't have enough help, uh, so we ended up combining junior high and high school groups for like a few months, and the high schoolers weren't too happy about that. Um, and I was stressed. And uh, you know, it was around this time uh, that, um, that I had lunch with Pastor Kim. Uh, because he wanted to know how the transition was going, and I said that it was kind of hard. And, and I'm not going to spill you all the details, but the TLDR of what he had said was that I didn't have to do everything. Um, other servant leaders can do things that I didn't have to do. And it was because of that conversation that I realized that I was trying to do all these different things that God didn't expect me to do. And I wish I can tell you that everything changed after that, like it didn't. Um, but it, it was a turning point for me in the youth ministry. Because I stopped trying to be the Messiah of this youth group. And by God's help, I ended up embracing my own limitations and weaknesses. And you know, this, that's why the youth group is the way it is. It's mediocre. So I'm sorry, guys. Just kidding. Um, I lowered the bar, guys. So I'm just kidding. But knowing our place uh, means that we embrace our creaturely limitations. The one thing that pastors, kings, and, and high schoolers all have in common is that they are bound by limitations, whether high schoolers believe it or not. Uh, we can't and shouldn't do everything even if we wanted to. Uh, one of the ways that we can detect restlessness and unnecessary burden is by discerning if the expectations that we place upon ourselves are stricter than God's expectations upon us. What does God expect of us? God expects that we love him with all that we are and to love others with all that we are. That is what God expects. But beyond these expectations, God gives us a ton of freedom, immense freedom. This means that we don't have to overcommit to the things that are not expected of us. And while there are some of you who are just doing nothing and unfaithful in the things that God requires and expects of you, I think the larger problem that we face is overcommitment. One of the challenges of living in an age of hurry and efficiency is the cultural expectation that if you're not doing more, then there is something wrong with you. So some, so some of you have a more heightened sense of duty and responsibility. Some of you feel bad for not doing more. So some of you sign up for every single club that your, that your school has to offer, which I don't think any of you guys are doing, but maybe just hypothetically. Um, some of you pack your schedules full with classes. And I think this cultural expectation has seeped into the life of the church as well. At church, we have become what I like, what I like to call stewardship maximalists. It's a big word. But one of the best things about a growing church like Lighthouse, I think also happens to be one of its Achilles heels. One of the things that has happened as a result of a growing church is the need for us to do more stuff. And we hear the announcements for on, on, on Sunday mornings, like, you know, sign up for this class, attend this hike, uh, do this thing, go to this event, participate in this training, and it goes on and on and on. Now, of, of course, we're not forcing anyone to do that. But I, I think that as much as these things are fantastic and great things, sometimes if we're not careful, it perpetuates this idea of overcommitment. And it often spills into our relationships with other people we end up de developing Messiah complexes. If I don't talk to this person, then no one will. If I don't uh, take up this project myself, then no one else will. Sometimes out of all people, Christians place unnecessary burdens upon themselves. But usually, I think usually, especially as I think about this high school group, usually a main source of our lack of rest and joy and contentment and our stress is that we focus so much time on the stuff that doesn't 
matter as much, that we actually don't have time to devote to the stuff that matters more. I call that stewardship minimalism. If I can be frank, I don't think the problem for many of us isn't that you overcommit yourself to the pursuit of godliness, but to the stuff that doesn't really matter. Like I've had conversations with some of you and I'd ask you guys how reading the Bible or praying is going and some of you guys just tell me, well, I don't do any of that because I'm just hanging out with people, with this person. I need to go to this practice. I need to attend this school events and I'm doing this project and I'm playing this video game and I'm sleeping late. So I just didn't have time and I felt tired. And the problem isn't that those things are wrong. The problem in many ways is actually our use of time. But one of the challenges that we face living particularly in a, day, in a digital age is that we constantly feel busy, but not with hobbies, recreation, or even play. We are busy with busyness. Another tweet that pretty much sums up my life says that uh, being an adult is trying to find something to watch on Netflix, but you don't because now it's time for bed. Because you're just searching the entire evening, watching for something to watch, or looking for something to watch. And so when you, we could have spent something, spent time actually seeking the welfare of others, we've spent that time doing other stuff like watching a ton of TikTok videos, or anything really meaningful or purposeful. And so for some, <laughs> some of us, we really need to evaluate if the stuff that we're doing is stuff that we should be doing. Many, maybe one of the reasons why we feel stressed and unnecessarily burdened as high schoolers is because we're, we've squandered our time doing stuff and neglecting what's more important. And then sometimes we find ourselves burnt out and discontent because we've misunderstood what human limitations are all about. You know, in college, I had a friend who almost never slept. Um, and he justified his lack of sleeping by saying that he was hanging out with people and doing ministry. But what my friend didn't realize was that as important as ministry is, what's more important to God in that moment is the fact that he recognized his human limitations, not his ability to be like God. Don't misunderstand me. Don't tell your parents that Pastor Eric said that, you know, you don't have to do this or that anymore. The point isn't that God expects the bare minimum. The point is that we need to embrace our creaturely limitations. You know, we shouldn't blame Jesus for something that we misunderstand. When Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it wasn't a promise to relieve all of the necessary burdens of the Christian life because the Christian life does have necessary burdens. Rather, it was a promise to relieve all the unnecessary burdens that we place upon ourselves as we step out of bounds and try to be our own kings and queens. When we disregard our natural human limitations, we set ourselves in God's place. And that's where we begin to fall apart physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's precisely how Adam and Eve sinned against God. They went beyond what God expected of them. God simply expected them to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could have eaten from any tree in the garden, just not that tree. But going beyond their limitations and God's command, Adam and Eve set themselves up in God's place. That was the problem. You see, the temptation to be limitless is the temptation to be God. The temptation to be limitless is the temptation to be God. And we see again in Genesis chapter 11, when humanity goes beyond their limit and, and builds the Tower of Babel so that they would actually be like God. We see it another time in the tragic fall of David himself. Even a man after God's own heart wasn't immune to going beyond human limitations. He oversteps his boundaries as the king and he commits adultery and murder. David's kingdom was never the same after that. If you're not experiencing Jesus' rest, if you are weighed down and feeling tired and resentful of the Christian life, you must ask yourself 
whether you're actually resting under his yoke or under your own yoke. If you're feeling burdened and heavy laden, you must ask your question whether what ask the question whether you're as humbly submitted to him as you believe yourself to be. Instead of embracing Jesus as your own Messiah, it's entirely possible that you've become your own Messiah and begun plowing under your own, your own direction and strength. You know what's interesting? In the verse before, he says, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A yoke is a brace that pairs two cattle together. Now imagine that Jesus is on one side of the yoke and you are on the other side. What would you learn from him? What we would learn from him is that Jesus would become the first human being who did not go beyond his human limitations, even though he was God. Jesus didn't do it all. Jesus didn't meet every physical need as we have seen in the scriptures. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to preach to another. He got tired just like any other human being. But unlike any other human being, he did everything that God asked him to do. And what you would learn from Jesus is that in submission to his father's will, to all that God had asked him to do, he would eventually go to the cross. And on the cross, he would be crucified for the sins of those who submit themselves under his easy yoke. And he would be crushed for those who were crushed by the burdens of their own sins and their own sorrows. And in rising from the grave, he would give his people rest for their souls. This is ultimately what knowing our place means, that we have submitted our lives under the reign of King Jesus. And in submitting our lives under him, we live freely and courageously. And as followers of King Jesus, we recognize that there is a kind of busyness that is good and is from God. If Jesus underwent tiredness and sickness for the sake of others, then it also means that as his followers, we will too. We may have to endure tiredness when we, like Jesus, are servants of people. Often in the path of following Jesus, there will be burdens that God requires for us to carry, the burdens and sins of others. Like I, like, like I mentioned last week, Jesus didn't come in his first coming to take our suffering away, but to fill it with his presence. For this reason, effective love Love like that is rarely efficient. People take time. And if we love others well, how can we not be busy and burdened at least some of the time? But it never means that we go it alone. We have been yoked with Jesus and his yoke is easy and the burden is light. And it's not the yoke of any person, again, but Jesus himself. Jesus is who ultimately justifies and satisfies our existence. We, 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 for, and so we cultivate a contented heart by knowing our place in God's world. We know our place in God's world. Second is that we choose the good portion. We choose the good portion. Now going back to Harold for a second, you guys still remember him? Uh, what happened after his 100 meter final? Did he win? Well, it turns out that he did win and he became Britain's first Olympic 100 meter champion with all the fame and glory that he could only dream of except it became reality. It, seem, it, it seems like his entire life that he had built for this moment finally paid off. A friend of his had said that the whole of his subsequent life depended on the fact that he won the Olympic 100 meters. Harold eventually settled down and he got married and his biographer said that he went on to exercise a lifelong influence over athletics. And so from all appearances, it looked like his win had actually justified his existence and that he actually found this elusive contentment that he had been searching for his entire life. But it all came crashing down. Almost Hilariously, his biographer comments that later in his life, 50 years after his victory, his, his Olympic gold medal was stolen 
along with his wife's wedding, wedding ring that he had made out of his gold medal. The big deal, right? It's just a, just a gold medal. He still got the record. But before his death in 1978, his biographer notes that Harold had been irked by the fact that his ath athletic triumphs appear to have been forgotten with new athletes cropping up and people beating his times. To Harold, people didn't even know who he, who he was anymore. He was just some old guy with some fame from yesteryear and whose stuff got stolen. And you know, I found that so tragic. Even in the last years of his life, Harold never found lasting contentment. Not even Olympian level achievements could prop his life up because his life was, was founded on something that ultimately could never satisfy and last. And the question is, where can this contentment and rest be found? Take a look at verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. What calmed and quieted David's soul? The, the middle line of the verse gives us a little clue. <clears throat> he uses a simile and compares his contented soul to a baby who is content with his mother. His soul is like a baby who is content with his mom, a baby that rests in the care of his mom, a baby who is completely dependent, not on the environment, but on its mother. The point is that the contented state of David's soul was not as a result of his circumstances, but in the good, good portion of his savior. Augustine said it so perfectly in his autobiography, Confessions. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What does this rest look like? In Luke chapter, 38, uh, chapter 10, there's no 38th chapter in Luke, just uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 38 to 42 is the famous passage of, of Martha and Mary. It's a familiar passage for, I think, for most of us, but I'm going to have us turn there and read it. And I think this passage is actually going to help us illumine what David actually means in Psalm 131. But Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my mother has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You know, for the longest time, I couldn't help but think that Jesus was just being unrealistic here. You know, as a pastor, I sympathize more with, with Martha than I do with Mary. If, if all I do is sit at Jesus' feet, who is going to set up the chairs in here? Who is going to print the sermon notes? Who's going to write the sermon? Someone has to put the chairs away. Someone has to throw out the trash. Someone has to stay behind when there's just one kid in the gym left waiting to get picked up. If all we do is sit at the feet of Jesus, how can we carry out the rest of all that God expects of us? We have deadlines, school projects, exams. Who is going to do any of those things for us? That's how Martha was feeling. And that's often how I feel. And this might also be how you feel. And while Jesus isn't discouraging us from all the important things that still need to be done in our lives, his caution is that we must not let the important things in our lives distract us from the most important thing in our lives, Jesus himself. You know, one of the reasons why we often feel like Martha is because God actually isn't at the center of our lives, but just a mere accessory. So many of us treat God like he's our pet. 
You know, we think that God just wants some time to play, so we'll spend five minutes of our day going for a walk with God. You know, maybe we'll, we'll feed God our spiritual leftovers under the table. But what I want you guys to see is that God is not some needy dog in need of some love and attention. There is no favor with which we can ever pay God because God is not our pet. He's not a mere accessory to our lives. We treat God as if he needs us to run his universe, but God has been just fine without us before any of us were even born. The God who who upholds the universe with a single word is the same God who upholds your life. But you see, when God is not our life source, we will search for it in another person, in a friendship, in the opinions of others, in our academic achievements. And so it's no wonder that we feel stressed, fatigued, and burdened, and discontented. It's the same reason why Martha felt fatigued, stressed, burdened, and discontented. You see, the Lord was sitting right in her living room as she was standing and working in the kitchen. Yes, stuff in the kitchen needed to be done and dinner needed to be served, but the most important thing in that moment wasn't the meal, but Jesus himself. Yes, stuff needs to be done at church and sermons need to be preached, but the most important thing in the moment isn't even the sermon itself, but Jesus himself. Yes, stuff needs to be done in your classrooms and in your bedroom and homework needs to be done, but the most important thing in the moment isn't the homework, but Jesus. Jesus is the good portion who justifies our very existence. So may I encourage you that you commit to taking one day out of your week to take a Sabbath and to simply spend time with him. It seems pretty obvious, but I want you guys to see that to Sabbath is to enter into the rest that God invites us to enjoy. In that sense, Sabbath is a gift. God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. God's design for the Sabbath isn't to punish little kids with naps on Sundays or to drive us to boredom and inactivity once every seven days. In other words, the Sabbath, again, is a gift that God gives us to reorient our lives around him. Have you guys ever wondered why youth retreats or summer camps almost always give you a sense of vision and a deeper desire for God and spiritual growth? It's because you have to clear your schedule to do them. You have to get away to do it. You set aside your normal insanity for a weekend and find the space to rest, to pray, and to worship. But did you realize that you can do that on every weekend? You can take one day out of your seven days to simply be with the Lord, to recalibrate, to bring your cares, and to choose the good portion. To to, to take a hike, to go to the ocean, bring a hydro flask, to bring a Bible, and come with a hungry heart. And as we take a Sabbath, we participate in something that is deeply countercultural in a nonstop world. Because when we Sabbath, we enter our weeks with renewed vision and strength to love God and neighbor. One of the interesting things about the Martha and Mary passage is its placement in chapter 10 of Luke. The passage of Martha and Mary is the conclusion to a mission trip that Jesus sends his disciples on. Where the disciples cast out demons, they preach the gospel, they heal the sick. And when the disciples come back, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, the the, the man who showed compassion to a stranger, loved his neighbor and took care of of the man. And then to conclude all this is the story of Mary and Martha. Why is this passage at the end of Luke chapter 10? It's because if we heal the sick, cast out demons, preach the gospel, show mercy, do justice, but fail to sit at the feet of Jesus, then we've missed the one thing that we truly need as important as all those other things are. The only thing more important than doing ministry, serving God, doing things for God, loving others, 
is being ministered to, being served by, and being loved by Jesus himself. It's the reason why the Apostle John says that we love because he first loved us. And so we choose the good portion because it is the good portion that will satisfy and still our restless souls and will never be taken away from us. When everything else in our lives fail and when the circumstances of our life changes, he will remain. And that brings us to the final point, the third point. We wait on the Lord. We wait on the Lord. Now flip back to Psalm 131 and take a look at verse 3. Psalm 131, verse 3. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So David calls us to hope in the Lord because it characterizes what contentment is supposed to look like when the busyness of our lives still looks just the same. It doesn't matter whether our circumstances have changed for the better or, for not, or not. And for the last 45 minutes, 40 minutes actually, I hope I've shown you that better circumstances can't justify nor sustain true contentment. And it's because our our hope is in the Lord. It's it's not in different things. The better translation for hope actually is is the word wait. We wait on him. You know, at the end of Chariots of Fire, right before um, Eric Liddell, uh, Little rather, uh, the other character in the movie, um, right before he runs his 400 meter final, uh, he's given a note from an American contestant. And the note said, he who honors God, he will honor. And you know, we find out that as a Christian, Uh, Eric Little refused to run his choice of heat on a Sunday, the same heat that Harold Abrahams ran in. Instead, Eric Little competes in the 400-meter final and won. And like Harold Abrahams, he receives all the fame and glory. And you know, Christians in particular uh, love the story of Eric Little because many believe that it's because he honored honored God that he won the race and became an Olympian uh, and, and, and so forth and so forth. And people love the story because it's the Christian dream, right? Like, you know, you sacrifice a little for God and he will give you your heart's desire. <clears throat> if you skip your soccer game on Sunday, don't be surprised if you're given a little extra be- blessing un- under your pillow. Some, if some of you, you know, believe in God, go to church, sing the songs, maybe because maybe God might just give you the life that you've always wanted. Or if I trust Jesus, then my circumstances truly will be better. And if you believe this, you have not believed in the gospel, but you believed in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And this is actually not what Eric Little's story is about. Eric Little fades into obscurity, we find out, as he gives up his fame and glory, as he becomes a missionary to China. He, no one knows him there, and he dies at the, at the age of 43 in a Japanese internment camp in China. And for some of us, we're just thinking, what a, what a waste. Eric Little had such a bright future. He could have lived for another 40 years of his life at the minimum if he hadn't dropped everything and moved to China. He could have lived a stress-free life, uh, burden-free, cont- a contented life back home in the comforts of, and praise of Scotland. But the story of Eric Little is that he could have been in the bottom of the ocean, in the comfort of his home, or in the terrible living conditions of occupied China, and nothing would have changed, because in Jesus, he had everything that he needed. There is no more chasing for him. Did it mean that Eric didn't suffer, or that he found it easier than everyone else because of his Christian faith? Well, of course not. He still struggled and he still sinned, but the difference between Eric Little and Harold Abrahams was that Eric's existence was fully justified. There is no approval to win. He had nothing to prove. Win or lose, life or death, God was his portion. Not even the threat of death nor changing circumstances could take that away. You know, if you were to look up the last words of Eric Little, 
It's actually on Wikipedia. Uh, his last words were, it's complete surrender. Complete surrender. The, the circumstances of Eric Little's life changed nothing at all <clears throat> because he knew that he was under the yoke of the master who gave him rest. That's what it means to hope and wait on God. It was a life of complete surrender. That as we cast our hopes on God, we cast it not upon ourselves, but on someone else. We entrust our lives to another person. That is, what, that is a definition of complete surrender. And the question is, how about you? Will we, like Harold, live in complete discontentment, never sure if what we ever do in our lives will justify our existence? Or will we, like Eric, live in complete surrender? Because in Jesus, our lives have already been justified. It's, it's, it's finished. We have and can cultivate a contented heart because we know our place. We choose the good portion and we wait on God. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we look at our lives, our, our, our lives are busy. Our lives are, are, are messy. There's a ton of stuff going on. But God, I pray that as we do so, as we look at the busyness of our lives, that we would look at the yoke of Jesus. And that looking at the yoke of Jesus, that we would place ourselves under his yoke. And that in doing so, that we would find rest for our souls. Because as we place ourselves under his yoke, we recognize that we are, we are put in our proper place that we are not the master, Jesus is. And that in yoking ourselves to Jesus, we have found that the one that we have linked up to is our portion. And that as we, as we plow with Jesus and as we are pulled along this yoke with him, we wait on him. We wait for the day when Jesus will finally give us rest for our souls, finally and ultimately. And so God, even in the meantime, we, I pray for, for these high schoolers here, that for them, that as they consider the, the really the, the, the stressful things of their lives, that in the midst of that stressfulness and busyness, that they would find that in Jesus, they have all that they need, a life fully justified, a life content in him. God, we thank you and we love you. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed.